0: Welcome back to another episode of The Unbreakable. I'm Luke Cunningham, and today we have a truly noteworthy guest joining us. John McCraw's career trajectory has been nothing short of remarkable. From an outstanding college football career at Kansas State, to being a second-round draft pick for the New York Jets. He's someone who has proven his mettle on the field, further solidifying his place in the NFL. John also had a significant tenure with the Kansas City Chiefs, Totaling a decade in professional football. But his pursuits didn't end with football. John went on to immerse himself in the world of neuroscience. Today, he's the co-founder of Vision Pursue, a transformative initiative focused on performance mindset training. In this compelling episode, We'll discuss John's transition from the NFL to neuroscience, delve into the biochemical factors like dopamine, serotonin, and cortisol that influence our lives, and examine the practical habits that can make us more mindful. Moreover, we'll talk about how Vision Pursue is setting new standards in performance, not just in athletics, but also in the corporate world. We'll have our quick fire segment towards the end, also for a lighter touch. John, it's an honor to welcome you to the Unbreakable. John McGraw, welcome to the Unbreakable podcast. Thanks for having me, Luke. Excited to be here. Uh, absolutely. Um, it, it's a real pleasure. And, and for our listeners, would you be kind enough to, to give us a bit of a synopsis on your background?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a small town Kansas kid. Uh, grew up on a, on a farm and uh, I had two dreams. Um, one play football at Kansas State uh, for Coach Bill Snyder and the next play in the NFL. So I uh, walked on the Kansas State football program, got a degree in business finance, uh, ended up a second round draft pick to the New York Jets. So uh, so went from the Little Apple, Manhattan, Kansas, to the Big Apple, uh, Manhattan, New York, which is a little bit of a culture shock, actually, a lot of a culture shock., uh, but quite an experience. spent a few years with the Jets, uh, two years with the Detroit Lions, and then my last five seasons were back in Kansas City, of close to in Kansas, close to where I grew up with the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, so got to finish up my career NFL career there. Uh, and then um, yeah, settled down uh, here in Kansas City, and then started um, co-founded our consulting firm, Vision Pursue. Uh, with uh, my business partner, Russ Roush, and um, we now focus on mindset training. Uh, We call it performance mindset for corporate teams and sports teams.
0: Fantastic. And, and I certainly want to jump into a plethora of that information. Um, just going back into your early career, just so we can get a good, uh, a good understanding uh, as to you know, your background there. And so the journey from, from small town, as you alluded to, to the NFL, um, that probably covers a lot of milestones and pivotal moments. Uh, what were some of the some significant areas um, or significant points that, that led you to a career in the NFL?
1: Yeah, I think number one was just having this innate passion for sports. Like, I just love sports. Anything that had a ball involved, really even, I love track and field too. So competition, love competition, love sports. So I had that just innate wired into me uh, from a really young age. Um, And I'll never forget when um, I found out, probably age five or six, somewhere in there, that people will actually pay you money to play sports for a living. Like that's a that's a full time job for some people. And I'm everything like oh, sign me up. Like my my life is figured out. I know exactly what I want to do with my life. Uh, and it turns out they'll pay you a lot of money if you're good at it. So so my my course was set. Um, and, and even I think what was really instrumental was that my parents encouraged that. I like they they didn't come in right away and say hey you know John being a professional soccer player football player basketball player all at the same time like that's not realistic. They didn't come in and do that. Um, and so I, so I was able to maintain that kind of dream And even as I got a little bit older and realized that everyone else had the same great idea, creating a very competitive environment in professional sports, even then I, I, I maintained that, Hey, this was, this was possible, right? It's not, it wasn't definitely going to happen, but it was possible. And I was also, uh, had, had a, you know, good enough kind of grounding upbringing that I didn't put all my eggs in one basket. You know, I focused on my education, got really good grades, uh, was a two time first team academic All-American at K-State. Uh, and so I um, realized that, uh, you know, you want to have a good backup plan. So I had that in place, but kind of pieces fell in place from having a really good support system and innate passion for the game. Um, when I got to Kansas State, I was way behind. I walked on didn't earn. A, I had no Division One scholarship offers coming out of high school. Uh, and part of that was playing at a really small high school um, uh, team, really small high school that I went to. But then also, just not—I was a late bloomer, kind of developed physically a little bit later. Uh, and so, um, Coach Snyder having a really good walk-on program at K-State gave me time to develop uh, as a, as a player and as a, as an athlete. Um, So that was instrumental. Um, And then also just going back to my support system, had uh, really great family, parents that um, gave me good instruction. I was able to focus on the right things at the right time. I didn't get distracted by a lot of other things that I think a lot of my uh, peers were easily distracted by. I was very singular focused. Here's my goal. What do I have to do every day to get there? Um, And there, there weren't a lot of distractions along the way from age five to... 23 when I was finally drafted in the
0: NFL and was that testament to your family uh, and the conditions they set? Did they allow you to flourish into that area or was that something you had to get an early pulse upon?
1: That's a great question. I, I think part of it, definitely a big part of it was my family parents and support system. Um, I, I started playing Suzuki violin when I was five years old and I was practicing. My mom was making sure I was practicing 30 minutes a day, right? Like there was just, you just this is what you did. You develop these good habits. So you put the work in and you do the reps and then you, know, you, you can achieve really amazing things if you do that over time. So, so that was part of our support system. Another thing that I think really impacted me uh, was a car accident my freshman year in high school. That was my fault. So I just got my my uh, license, was driving to, high, driving to school one morning, have three sisters. My two younger sisters were in the car with me, um, and I got a little bit too close to the edge of the road. We were on this really narrow two-lane county road, and there was a big dip off the you know, ditch on the side of the road, so it kind of yanked the whole truck off the side of the road. I clip a culvert sign, just happened to be going over a culvert at the same time, comes back through the windshield and hits my middle sister, Bethany, in the forehead. Um, and just it was it was bad really bad um, didn't know if she was going to make it she was in the hospital for weeks they had to jigsaw puzzle her forehead back together um, remove three-fourths of the frontal lobe of her brain uh, and there was just no guarantee if she was going to make it if she, was, if she did make it if she was going to recover so long story short she does make a full recovery more accurate full recovery but what that did for my 14 year old brain was it just all of a sudden, it kind of shocked me out of my small little, um, you know, small brain, small town minded brain and said, Hey, you know what? Um, life is short. Like we're not, we're not guaranteed tomorrow and I want to make the moments that I have here count. And I think that gave me this as a little additional drive, um, to focus on the right things. Um, probably at a younger age than I
0: would have otherwise. Yeah. It's, uh, well, thanks for sharing that that piece. It's a miraculous tool is a brain, even at those early ages, how it can start to drive and, and promote certain behaviors. Um, incredible. And then um, Kansas State and, and playing college football and, and the gulf between that and the NFL, is it as significant as it looks on the tin? Um, was the preparation there or was there a, a completely different class of mindset when you got to the professional entities? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. The jump from high school to college was was much bigger for me. It took me almost three years to catch up with the speed of the game going from small town Kansas football to division you know, Division one Big Twelve football. Which at the time, Big Twelve football in the late nineties was uh, probably the elite conference and, and probably had the, the uh, most talented players in it and most NFL caliber players. And so the jump from K State to the NFL wasn't very difficult because we were I was going up against NFL caliber you know, athletes on on pretty much weekly basis in the big 12. And so I would say, pre-season and then a few games into the regular season, my working year, I was caught up with the speed of, of the NFL.
0: And, and, you know, if I think back to, and um, what year would this be? This was 2002. 90, 2002. 2002. Um, the problem is, the probably isn't the level of support, um, certainly mentally and emotionally, uh, of transitioning from, from school to that big 12, as you alluded to, um, what tools did you have at your disposal, um, in order to help that, uh, that, that transition?
1: That's a great question. So, so I'll go back and, and the the support system that I had, you know, parents, family, that was a really instrumental part of it. Um, but you're right; there, there wasn't. No one was really talking about the mental side of the game, right? There was just hey, work really hard, you know, be tough, um, you know, see ball, hit ball, run harder, run faster, you know, hit harder. Like that was just kind of the that was the best advice you got back then, right? Um, and and so. I had, I had an enormous amount of performance anxiety, um, going back to, to college ball all the way through the NFL, um, that I thought was, I was kind of unique, like no one else was dealing with it. Of course, you don't talk about these kind of things in the locker room. Um, I just thought, Hey, this is just something I've got to work with and deal with having that support system was helpful. Uh, you know, also having uh, some things to fall back on. I got my degree, like I could, you know, uh, carry a conversation. I was able, I was going to have a, you know, a job. And, um, but the biggest the biggest, I think, concern was always you still want to let your teammates down. And so you put this enormous pressure on yourself and couple that with, hey, there's a lot of money at stake. There's millions of people watching on TV. got all these fans and you don't want to let fans down. You don't want to let coaches down. You don't want to let your family down. it's all in this microscope. And so there's a there's there's just very um it's very difficult to prepare yourself mentally and emotionally for that kind of uh, fishbowl that you live in as a as a professional athlete and all the week in and week out pressure to perform at a really high level uh, and so so my 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 family uh, my faith really helped in those early years um, but at the end of the day I was still lacking some really critical mental skills that uh, um, I learned later after I retired after my career that I wish I would have had when I was when I was
0: playing. And are there tools now for individuals who are playing the sport to hone into a lot sooner than, than you had? Yes, yes, it, absolutely. It's, it's the um, kind of performance psychology in
1: general. We've, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about the brain. We've learned about what, what it takes to perform at the highest level over a long um, scope of time. Um, and how to how to sustain that? It's still not as accessible as I would we would like to see it be, to especially youth athletes, um, but even professional athletes. Most of the, uh, I would say, all the major league sports are still way behind uh, in in terms of what they're delivering to their athletes. Uh, but fortunately, there's there's more out there. You know, you can go to YouTube and 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 search and other others. Um, you know, Digital media channels where there's you know, some really good people out there. There's also um, some who aren't giving great advice, right? Um, and so you got to kind of be careful who you're who you're listening to. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's more uh, available now than of course it was 20 years ago. But we still have a long ways
0: to go. Gotcha, um and I, I feel in this day and age there's, there's slightly more empathy than there's been in past i know we're saying that on the backdrop of what's occurred the last weekend in the middle east which, which is incredibly sad um however if i think about the the perception of what the nfl's like what's the reality of it for, for the players um the levels of stress because we have a tendency to think that they're privileged uh, they're incredibly well paid they're in the limelight they're almost celebrity-esque um, but what they're struggling with that we may not see as laymen
1: yeah that's that's a really great question. Yeah, you look at the outside, you think, okay, they're doing what they love. they're making lots of money doing it. They've got some fame and recognition, right They've got you know more, more than likely they have their in their good health and good relationships, relatively good relationships with a family. Yet most of them are not having a great life experience. Most of them are not enjoying life in the NFL, minus a few you know, moments here and there when they play really well, they win a game or they're partying with their, with their teammates. Right? Like those, and and the, the reality is, is that uh, every day you're fighting for your job. Most guys are fighting for their job. There's very few guaranteed contracts still, especially in the NFL. Uh, and so teams can cut you at any time. Uh, and they don't owe you any more, more money from your contracts and so no guarantee contracts that creates a lot of pressure. Um, and then you're going up against the best in the world, right? You're, every, every week you're going up against guys that are at least as talented, if not more talented than you. Um, and then, you know, you've got just coaching, you know, coaches and culture and team. There's a lot of moving pieces inside of the NFL franchise and get the whole business side of things um, going on um, that. A lot of guys aren't prepared for right. So, and, and you've got your agent who's trying to help you, you know, make money in other ways. And there's there's just a lot of distractions, uh, and there's a lot of pressure. Um, it's hard to focus on the right things at the right time. Uh, family pressure comes into to play for a lot of guys uh, where, you know, families wanting to, wanting to be supported, um, you know, you're not going to last very long, right? The NFL yeah, famously, not for long, the acronym, right? In the NFL. So the average career is three years. Um, and you know, you've got to try and make the, the money last. Um, so, so it's, there, there's, it's really hard to, um, for me to paint a picture of, a uh, the challenges. Now there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of great stuff to it too, but I would say there's a lot of challenges that most people don't see from the outside. And they forget that NFL players are human beings and you see them out there and it looks like they're having a great time and they love running into each other full speed. And um, if they don't see them Monday mornings when they can't get out of bed and their body's pretty broken up or after they retire and all the the physical ailments that that we have uh, from all the damage that we do to our body, and um, during that time, and of course, the, the mental health component and CTE and traumatic brain injury. And so there, there there's a lot going on there. And 99% of guys are ill-equipped mentally and emotionally to
0: handle that environment. It certainly appears that way. Uh, from from someone who's been through impact um, and, and a level of PTSD in the past, you can you can look on and see some similar similarities with some of these levels of sports, especially high impact um, yeah. physical sports, and, and of course being being in the military. And and if I think about when John McCraw was his at his peak, uh, when his performance was at his highest, uh, whilst playing football, was was there also a correlation between? your personal life going well, your professional life going well? Was a symmetry between all aspects of your life um, when you were showing up the best version of yourself?
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a a really important part for athletes to be able to stay focused on what's going on uh, in in their professional realm, knowing that family is happy and safe and healthy. And and when they're not, that's going to impact athletes just like anybody uh, would anybody else. Um, and, and again, I would say there are a lot more challenges for, uh, romantic relationships for being, uh, you're raising kids when you're in that, again, in that microscope and, um, have the pressures and you're gone, you're traveling all the time. Um, so it's, it's more challenging to, to have a really uh, healthy family and personal life um, at home. Um, but that is a, a really important foundation for success professionally. Uh, so it, it's a really great point when I think probably a lot of guys don't have a really strong, you know, um, family foundation, uh, that can make it challenging.
0: Yeah. The, the reason I say that is, is, is through my personal experience and, and quite a few folks that I know when I've shown up the best version of myself now in the corporate environment is when I've been completely lockstep at home. Um, now my eldest son, um, he, he has special needs. So it was really that dynamic that forced myself and my wife to sit down and almost start to build up a vision and goals. ourselves. relationships are generally emotional, <laughs> driven most of the time. Um, but when, when you're with that partner, you can start to build logical goals up and then, you know, you can, you can strive for incredible things. But I found when we were in complete lockstep as to what we needed to do, what we were willing to sacrifice, in order to achieve, which is generally to support our family, then that's certainly when I've been the best version of myself. Outside of that, I've been at work and thinking about home. I'm at the gym and thinking about dinner. It's just this perpetual wheel that just doesn't sync. Uh, everything's just off sync. But I, I feel when things are going well at home, uh, things typically then play into work and, and vice versa. So,
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we'll get into, I'm sure here a little bit later in the, in the- in the conversation when important parts of your life are not stable right or safe or sound your brain's job is to alert you right so it's going to be alerting you saying hey you know my spouse or my kids or you know what whatever's going on my health like it's not stable. It's not okay. And so your brain's job is to keep alerting you of that. And so that's going to take up mental and emotional space. And it's going to remind you at times when you don't probably want to be reminded, you want to focus on stuff that's going on at work and your brain's like, nope, this is important. It's trying to get your attention. Um, And so to your point, when those other parts of our life are sound and safe and stable, then our, our mind can calm and relax and focus on the right things at the right time.
0: And, and I don't know if you're, you feel this also, but my brain decides to alert me about 11 o'clock at night, just as I need to go to sleep. That's when it decides it just needs to send me a little message, um, yes. which, can, which can be pretty painful. Um, transitioning. Um, obviously, uh, NFL... Successful season or successful career, should I say? There, um, you moved into the business world um, and then went to co-found and still co-founds Vision Pursue. Could you kind of elaborate on that journey and, and then delve into the mission of Vision Pursue and what you're looking to to, to bring for your for your clientele? Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. So, so I retired from the NFL because of concussions. Uh, so, uh, the chiefs offered me a contract in 2012. I turned it down and a lot happened in that time span, uh, where I'd had another, uh, pretty significant concussion, uh, my last season there, uh, I'd had many more before that. Uh, but Within a few week time span, uh, Junior Seau uh, committed suicide who I'd looked up to uh, in the NFL and got to play against. Uh, so some of the people close to me that had played for a long time were struggling. Uh, a lot was coming out around CTE and some of the uh, the science behind, hey, guess guess what? It's not good for your brain to go through um, this kind of pounding over a long stretch of time.
0: And sorry, CTE, can you just elaborate on that briefly?
1: Yes, yes, I'm not gonna be able to pronounce uh, what the, the actual what it stands for. Um, but that is what they're finding from um, cumulative head trauma um, in football players, boxers, um, that leads to more of the degenerative brain diseases um, and can cause long-term trauma problems. Um, so uh, that's what they, they've labeled, um, what happens after cumulative trauma to the brain, traumatic brain injury. So Um, So that was all coming out about that time. And I just was like, okay, I've got two young children um, and I'd like to be around for as long as I can. It's time for me to to step away and do something else. Mm -hmm. As I was doing that, I became fascinated by the neuroscience behind traumatic brain injury and ways that I could be trying to improve my my brain health and try to create an environment for my brain to, if not heal itself, to at least give it prolonged, right? where Where I was at as long as I could. So... Began studying everything that impacts the brain. So, from diet and um, exercise and hydration and breathing and sleep and uh, meditation, I got really deep into mindfulness meditation. uh, And I was just kind of blown away by the brain itself and the brain body system um, and all the ways that we can enhance and improve and and help it. And so, as I began practicing a lot of these things, I began to experience a lot of benefit. I, I would say I was experiencing some symptoms that would be uh, correlated to, to dramatic, traumatic brain injury within a year or two after retiring and was concerned uh, within about a year of doing some of these different practices, got a tremendous relief uh, and realized, hey, I've got, there's a lot that we can do um, uh, to help improve our, our brain health. Uh, and so th- as I was doing that, the, the neuroscience got me into health psychology, which is just that relationship between the mind, the brain and the body. Um, and then the health psychology introduced me more to this field of performance psychology, which I had heard of. I just didn't think there was much to it. And I thought I you know, had it all figured out. Uh, and it turns out that there are some really simple techniques that have a huge impact on our ability to perform at the highest level available to us. Uh, And so as I was playing around with all these different disciplines and learning them and also integrating some of the practices into my life, it was really transformational for me, like really transformational and kind of found myself in these kind of coaching uh, relationships where I was helping share some of it with people in my life that were struggling or or just curious about it. Um, And then fast forward a couple of years, met my business partner, I think it was 2014, met my business partner. And... He was developing a mindset training program for the hedge fund he was at. He was coming from a very successful corporate career uh, in the hedge fund and technology space uh, and was seeing similar things in terms of burnout uh, and overwhelm and people just not being equipped to handle the pressure of um, a really highly transparent industry, the hedge fund industry, and trading millions of dollars. And there's really big consequences for wins and losses, um, just like in the NFL. Uh, And so there's a lot of parallels. And so he asked me to come in and help advise him on some of the the work that he was doing and developing a mindset. He was the the chief operating officer at that hedge fund. Uh, And then fast forward, we start to develop a a program and get some opportunities to roll it out. Uh, Two years later, he leaves the hedge fund and we decide to do this full time. I think that was 2016. We we said, hey, let's go. There's a market for this and uh, let's go share it with as many people uh, as will listen to us.
0: Perfect. And, and one would imagine that the, the market at that time would be more aligned and associated to professional sports. But as you alluded to, this is also the corporate world too, uh, digging into this. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, if you have a brain
1: and you're trying to do challenging things, then there's application, tons of application for you. And of course, there's parallels between sports and corporate. There are some differences too, but um, the, the principles, the disciplines um, are all the same, the context, a little bit different, but the disciplines um, all the same and the opportunity all the same. And um, so when we go in to a corporate team or a sports team, there's there's immediate, uh, uh, they, they relate to it uh, immediately yeah. and, and they see the opportunity and the benefit that's waiting for them with just a little bit of of, consistent work uh, and yeah and it's um, been proven out now we've gotten to, to have some really uh, amazing transformational um, impact on corporate teams and sports teams and a lot of individuals that really uh, changed our lives in, in radical ways um, by going through the, the program
0: and and uh, the product the program itself um, how how is that how is that
1: Yeah, so we have two 10-week programs that we run teams through. So if you think about mindset training, for a long time, it's been thought of as a really a one-on-one thing, right? Like you get a coach or a mentor or a trainer, and it's really thought to be more one-on-one, and that's a really important part of personal development, professional development. What we saw early on was that the majority of the skills required um, are generic. Like, everyone needs kind of these generic. And we'd say probably 80% of it is very generic and very general. Like this is this applies to everyone inside on your team and inside your organization. And then maybe there's 10 to 20%. that's personal. It's a nuance to them. Um, but the majority of the skills, the mental skills that we all need uh, are very generic. And so we developed a training program that will allow organizations to scale. So we can do it with small teams, but we can also do it with large teams, hundreds of people at the same time, can go through our program or even more. Um, and it's a two 10-week program. So the 10-week programs consist of live virtual training, um, usually about an hour a week um, over those 10 weeks uh, with one of our instructors. And then we have a mobile app that delivers daily practices. Um, and so they're they're committing to some daily practice three, four, or five times a week, somewhere in that span about 10 minutes a day um, that goes alongside with the teaching and training um, that they get weekly. Um, and so we'll go through those two ten weeks usually organizations will this would be a part of their onboarding process so they just this is something that all their new hires go through um, okay. every year uh, and so it's just kind of part of their DNA part of their culture and they develop a, a common language around a lot of principles and themes um, and then we also have some more advanced training for for example a leadership team that really wants to go more deeply um, and where collaboration is, is essential to their success and we do have some more um, uh, training for the for, for those um, teams but in general it's these two 10-week programs, cohort that we run cohorts through.
0: And are you gauging success based on collective and individual feedback from the clients?
1: That's correct, yeah. So we, we uh, the through the mobile app and the work that they're doing there, and then also uh, just self-reported, um, That we're able to get some very um, subjective, right? This is them just giving their personal experiences as they go through it. Um, and one of the big things that we measure is life experience. And so we'll ask them, hey, Typical workday, if you had to break it down into four categories, what would that typical workday feel like to you? So how much mm-hmm. of that typical workday, so from the time you wake up in the morning, the time you go to bed at night, how much of that is stressful and annoying? Um, and a lot of times they've got close, they're close to 100% at that point. <laughs> the second category is it's not as bad as I'm stressed out, but I'm life is kind of monotonous. It's a means to an end. Going through the motions to get to something more important in the future, the kind of boring, monotonous um, experience. The third category is escape. So these are ways that I get some relief from the stress and the annoyance and the monotony. And sometimes these are just hobbies, right? Sometimes these can be unhealthy forms of self-medication, ways that we cope and get some relief that oftentimes have some consequences to them, negative consequences. And the fourth category, I feel really good. I feel engaged. I feel purposeful in the work that I'm doing without the escape activities. So we haven't break down that into four categories, all four of those add up to hundred percent um, and then we, we measure that at day zero, day 30, day 60. Um, and it's it's a really significant shift um, in how they experience typical workday. What's great about it, what they see is that while their circumstances are impacting how they experience life, the biggest component of life experience is not our circumstances, but how our automatic brain has been programmed to interpret mm-hmm. our, our circumstances, or in other words, construct meaning from our experiences. What they realize is they have a lot of control over how they experience their circumstances, not a lot of control for, over our current circumstances, right? <laughs> we can yeah. influence them, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that, right? Let's, let's keep going after your goals and try and be ambitious and try to achieve and improve your life circumstances, but just know that's not going to radically shift your day-to-day life experience. Mm -hmm. What will shift it is if you learn the mental skills that help you choose how you're going to interpret those circumstances, how you're really going to experience those circumstances. So what's really great is by the end of 60 days, they realize, wow, like I could have an amazing life experience today. Mm -hmm. I don't have to wait until I get that lake house or until I get that promotion or until I get that perfect relationship. I could have an amazing life today. And that's a super empowering shift for them.
0: Mm-hmm. And if I think about society to today, we're kind of geared up for instant gratification in all walks of life. What would be some of the sacrifices an individual may have to make in order to reap the benefits uh, through through your program?
1: Yeah, so so there, there's really not a lot to start to move the needle. Um, and and the way we teach it, there are certain. Uh, mental skills that we call them, psychological tools that we can use. And then we also teach some really basic behavioral tools that will help begin to get um, the neurochemicals and and hormones in our bodies just operating better. Um, And what we're always looking for is what's the least amount of time, least amount of energy, least amount of investment for me personally to get the biggest ROI, like the biggest bang for my buck. Mm -hmm. And so we have these some, some really simple techniques that we teach that will allow them to start to get some relief and create some momentum. And then they start to realize, oh, wow, I'm, I'm getting excited about this. So, so it's it's not like I'm, I'm having to give up and sacrifice and I'm having to, you know, I can't do what I really want to do. I can't have all those sweets and I can't stay up late, all those things. They start to get really excited about, wow, this is how this impacts my brain. So for example, a great, um, one of the ones we use a lot that's really popular early on is um, in our program is we teach this, this principle of expect the expected. Mm-hmm. Right? And we just ask them to think about their life right and all the things that are stressing them out triggering them getting them off their game and we asked how do these things should you expect right like how many of these things are just a part of the human experience or just a part of your role at work or just a part of being a parent or being a spouse and 99 of it is all stuff that we should completely expect right like is this just this is just part of the deal we signed yeah. up for this right? yeah. And like, what it does is it takes the edge off they're like oh Okay, I don't have to be surprised by that every time it happens. Like this is mm-hmm. just something normalizes it for their brain. And they're like, okay, yeah, it's it's irritating, but it doesn't have to send me, you know, to you know, undergrad. <laughs> right? yes. Yeah. So, so, um, so that's, that's one simple tool. Another one's really simple. And this comes from the, the lab of, uh, at Stanford, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's really blowing up. And he, he's an amazing uh, professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology. Uh, we love him and his research. And he's done a great job of communicating that to the masses. And so really, a, a simple technique is just get outside for five to 10 minutes in the morning. Just get, some, just get some natural light in your eyes. And that creates all kinds of benefits for your entire system, including your sleep Helps get your circadian rhythms working. And so, like, that's not usually a a big obstacle for people. Hey, I can get outside for 10, five, 10 minutes in the morning um, and make that work. I get a bunch of benefit for it, but it's not a huge investment. So, it's not like you have to go and work out for an hour and a half every day and you got to radically change your diet and you've got to, you know, it's, it's not like that. There's really simple, small things that create the momentum for you and create a lot of benefit. uh, and then it gets you excited because you realize, wow, I, I have a lot of control over how my brain and body are functioning
0: and interpreting reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I actually picked up quite a few of those tools. From, in fact, you you uh, recommended to me Eckhart Tolle. The thing about the the power of now, and uh, he does such an incredible job of communicating to the layman uh, some some of these behaviors and some of these thoughts and processes. Um, and it, and it's quite quite riveting. Um, you almost feel, I mean, I don't want to over stipulate the word born again. I know it has connotations throughout religions, but there's right. a sense of just, there's a new coming when you can understand and when you can think about things in, in a slightly different way as to what you do and what you can't control. Um, but uh, really incredible work. And just just one other um, question on, on, on this um, I'd love to ask you before, before we move on. And that's, if we think about society now, are we getting weaker as it relates to resilience or are the atmospherics making it more difficult for us to get through um, our daily lives? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't know
1: if I can. I, here, here, here's, I, I think I, I, I see it both ways. I'm not trying to take the easy way out. I, I see uh, us becoming more aware of mental health and what the the brain and body need. Um, I also see us making it more difficult to engage in those healthy choices and behaviors. So, for example, social media, right? And just like anything else, it's it's not good or bad. It just is. But put it in the hands of uh, a really healthy working Brain, then it's going to be a great tool. And put in the hands of a not so healthy brain, it's, it's not going to be a great tool. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so there's a lot of things out there that if you're prepared and you um, are healthy and are in a good place, you develop good habits, um, you're you're going to be fine. But if you haven't, it, then it's it's. I think it's, it becomes more challenging. So from a from a resilient standpoint, uh, man, that's that's a really tough one. I, I think it depends on on the demographic and, and who you're who you're looking at. I think here's what I here's what I'm optimistic about. I think we, we've learned a lot about our psychology and our neurology, um, and even our physiology and just the intimate connection between all. It's almost hard to separate those anymore. Like they're just mm-hmm. all connected, right? Um, it's all really just one system. Um, but we're we're getting a lot of good information out there um on ways that we can can optimize that. Um, and for example, again, going back to Dr. Huberman, how do we keep our dopamine levels elevated? At the end of the day, resilience is dopamine. If mm-hmm. you have dopamine in your brain, you're going to be resilient. If you don't have dopamine in your brain, I don't care how tough you are, you have no chance, right? You just, you just, you can't, you're not going to be able to do it. Your, your system will just shut down and, and, um, and not be able to function. So learning some simple techniques to keep our dopamine elevated, which really isn't that hard to do at the end of the day that's going to create a very resilient culture. And so so I think that um, giving more attention to, to mental health um, and the needs that people have is really good. There's also the danger, I think maybe you're alluding to, that the more attention you give to something, the more you make a, a bigger deal of it than it really is. Uh, there's a really good book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, and I'm going to forget the author. Well, maybe I'll think of it here in a minute. But, uh, but a really good book talks about this, this concern that the, the more we coddle the, 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 mind and the body, um, the less resilient we get. The way we get more resilient is we stress ourselves, we stretch ourselves outside of our comfort zone. Right. And, and, and the more that we can stretch ourselves outside of the comfort zone, the stronger, more, more resilient we get. And so if we create a culture where no one's ever stressed or stretched, right, then there's no growth. We, we, we we're stuck where mm-hmm. we're at. Um, and so, so I, I, I see a little bit of, both, I see it going both ways. Here, here's what I'm really excited about, um, and and I love resilience. I think resilience is is fantastic, um, but there's this uh, new concept um, called anti-fragility, um, and it's, it's not a new concept. It's been around for a while, um, but it's become more popularized, um, and again, I'll, I'll think of the, the gentleman who uh, coined the, the term, um, or who at least has made it more popular, and I, I love the idea of this, which is, think about resilience. Resilience is I get stretched outside of my comfort zone. I get challenged, but then I'm able to bounce back, right? I'm able to bounce mm-hmm. back to where I was before relatively quickly. I'm a very resilient person. Anti-fragility is not only do I bounce back to where I was before, but I actually get stronger, mm-hmm. right? So, so challenges not only are, are do I have the ability to get back to where I was before, not only can I overcome them and re- return to homeostasis, I actually become a bigger, better, stronger individual right through that that process um and and this also goes back to the work of of, again of dr huberman where what they found is that someone who consciously embraces difficulty right who doesn't fall into that victim mindset oh this shouldn't be happening to me this only happens to me i'm unlucky right we fall into that that victim mindset when we do that challenges will steal dopamine from us they'll they'll steal life from us, energy but when we can consciously embrace it and say no this is a part of my human experience. This is a part of my story. Right. And I'm going to consciously, with awareness, I'm going to embrace this. Like I'm going to move into it. That challenge, that difficulty makes us stronger. It actually mm-hmm. creates dopamine. Like we get more energy, more motivation. Right. And the more you do this, the stronger you get. And pretty soon, in a, in a, in a kind of a twisted way, these challenges that used to, take from you they're actually, give, you actually get excited about it, right? You actually like, okay, <laughs> I, I'm excited to get in this cold tub right now because I know, right. That stressing my system is going to create more dopamine over the next six, eight hours. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I start to look at challenges as something that's not only necessary, but I want them. I, I, I want them because I know that they're necessary for me to get where I want to go and become the best version of myself. And so I, that's what I'm really excited about. And I, I kind of start, I've seen this start to permeate, um, for sure, the organizations we're working with, but even uh, beyond that, and, and that gets me
0: excited. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I feel I should be strong as an ox based on all the times I've I've had to deal with a level of cortisol. But of course, I haven't quite had uh, the the connection up up atop to, to deal with these things. Um, yeah, really, really fascinating, really fascinating things. Would you say? dopamine and some of the other uh, chemical releases are antidote to cortisol. Once we find a way to tap into consistent and healthy levels, because I know dopamine can have a a negative impact depending on where we go with that. But is that the main antidote to, to cortisol?
1: So that's a really great question. The first thing I would say is cortisol is amazing. Like it's actually a, a really important part of our function. And if, if I'm getting out big morning light first thing in the morning, releases cortisol, and you need that to be alert and focused. Um, it's it's the it's the chronic cortisol, right? Where it's being it's staying in the system too long. We're not flushing it out, um, and we're staying trapped inside of the central nervous system. We're staying in that stress response longer than we need to, um, and we're not able to to effortlessly move from central nervous system to parasympathetic or sympathetic to parasympathetic nervous system. So we're not able to move stress, relaxation, right? Stress, relaxation. We're just stuck inside of stress. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we're really stuck in that high beta wave brain state, right? And we can't transition to alpha. We can't get into that more relaxed state where we can help allow our body to do all the other things it needs to do to recover. So, so that's where cortisol becomes a challenge. And Um, I don't know if I would say it's it's, dopamine. I I think just healthy um, living, of course, is going to be part of that antidote. But at the end of the day, here's what we see is that you've got to learn how to psychologically activate the relaxation response, (laughs) which is why having some type of relaxation technique, whether it be meditation, meditation, a mindful walk, a body scan, um, a mantra—something that helps you focus your attention away from the stress, right? Away from the threat, which usually isn't a part of your present moment awareness. And you have the ability to help your system just reset for a few moments, right? And it could be for a few minutes, could be for longer. But then, then. You help your system recover, and then you can lean back into this, this stress response, the central nervous system, and go slay the dragon, take on the day, grow your business, have a difficult conversation, do the hard things. But what most people haven't figured out is that technique for them to activate that relaxation response, right? And, and that mm-hmm. releases a different chemical, serotonin, which is necessary. So, so dopamine is your, is your uh, reward molecule to go out and pursue things that are important to you. Uh, serotonin is, is another reward molecule but it's it's when you have the, the subjective belief that all of your needs are met by your current environment meaning and, and so you can look at it in terms of like maybe a gratitude meditation or something where i focus on all the amazing things that i have right now and i don't have to go pursue mm-hmm. i don't need things to be different than how they are for me to have a great life experience right now and so you see serotonin and dopamine are opposite sides of the same coin and if we don't release that serotonin, if you don't have that restoration time, a time when you're just really thankful and enjoying the moment and in that parasympathetic nervous system, you can't go back into the dopamine. Like you, you, it's harder for your brain and body to create the dopamine for you to keep being ambitious and going after your goals. Um, and, and again, that comes from the work of Dr. Lieberman, and he's done an amazing job communicating that to the, to the masses.
0: Uh, that, that serotonin piece I find I find really intriguing, um, would that be one of the reasons why when you see people deal with stress, and, and I'm sure I've fallen foul of this uh, multiple times, their response is generally to try and seek dopamine through the low hanging fruit of purchasing something, or eating some bad food, or drinking, or gambling, or watching trash on TV you see that kind of pendulum swing, um, and it kind of leaves, um, some of the other, some of the other chemical releases, uh, out, out there. I'm so glad you bring that
1: up. Yeah. It's, it's important to, to note. So there there's, here, here's the, the, the danger of dopamine, anything that spikes your dopamine above baseline very quickly is going to lead to the opposite as it falls below baseline, and you get the hangover effect, right? Mm-hmm. You get the the crash after the late night of partying. Um, you see this from professional athletes after they win the Super Bowl or the the championship, and they're like, okay, and just they just feel empty afterwards, right? Yeah. <laughs> And that's their, 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 system's completely out of dopamine. If, if, if we took the, all the dopamine out of our systems right now, we would all, we, you, you and I would both become extremely depressed and probably suicidal. Like we like, mm-hmm. that's just how important. Here's what's important is that we can do things that give us a slow burn or a slow rise of dopamine over the course of our day. And when you do that, you don't get to crash. You don't fall below baseline. The problem is, is that if you're chasing quick dopamine pleasure, you're going to spike yeah. and then you're going to fall below baseline. And then when you fall below baseline, what do you want to do? Because you don't feel very good. You go chase more dopamine. And so That's what happens is they, to it. exactly become addicted to it. And then and what happens is over time, the high that you got from whatever activity that you were chasing for pleasure will no longer give you that high. So you need more of it. And what you're doing is you're stair stepping down to where your baseline or your dopamine levels will be below baseline. Wow. And when that mm-hmm. happens, you have chronic depression, chronic anxiety, all the mental health disorder, a lot of the mental health dis- disorders that we're seeing. So learning how to, to gradually raise your dopamine levels throughout the day is such an important and building those habits in. So morning light, really important. Um, intermittent or time-restricted eating, really great way to do it. Uh, a challenging workout. Anytime you do a lot of physical exertion, that's going to give you that, that rise. Cold tubs, um, ice, um, cold showers great way to raise your dopamine levels um, and, and again this is going to be gradual the course of your day so you're not going to get that spike if you get that fall so um, not drinking alcohol like that's gonna you know taking some of the pleasure seeking fewer sweets um getting good sleep at night that's going to help release serotonin which will help you create more dopamine the next day so more of those kind of healthy habits will help you create a healthy relationship with dopamine um, that's going to give you a gradual rise and help you stay above baseline so most days you're just gonna feel good. Mm -hmm. And it's not because you just got, you know, a promotion or because you got, you know, a pay raise or because someone patted you on the back. You're just gonna be sitting there doing your normal day to day work and you're gonna just feel good. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And which is what we all want, right? We all all want that. And and that's having a really healthy relationship with dopamine and, and serotonin.
0: And, and does do those habits get slightly easier as well, if it's someone's natural reaction from a stressful moment to come home and crack open a bottle of wine, um, if they're looking at some of the different ways to uh, mitigate some of this stress, which are some of those slow burners, do they also create the conditions where the habits start to break with going for the, for the high dopamine hits?
1: I love that. It's a great question. Absolutely, right. So just imagine if your dope baseline dopamine levels are, are higher, then when you do something pleasurable, yeah, it feels good. But you do, the delta between the two, it's it's not that much. Like oh, that was enjoyable, but then I'm going to go back to a really great life experience already. If if I'm below baseline and I just don't feel very good and I'm depressed most days and I'm low motivation, low energy, and just don't have a real you know great vision for the future. Then when I do something that spikes my, my dopamine, there's a big delta there, right? Big difference. And now um, that that delta there, that creates a, a more addictive personality, addictive brain that needs that. It craves it even more. So absolutely, if you if you can do the begin to implement some of these simple things that will raise your dopamine higher, then your desire for those more immediate, pleasurable activities will will decrease
0: excellent I think there's some really credible actionable advice for, for our listeners to, to grasp hold of um, so so again John thank you so much for, for sharing that world and um, you can find out more and I know a lot of corporations um, and professional sports teams are using vision pursue uh, which is really built off the premise of this uh, this is taking it to a level that also enhances performance uh, so and the link will be on that um, on this this podcast uh, John I want to finish off with a couple of quick five questions uh are you cool with this let's do it favorite nfl moment
1: i'm gonna say my first interception playing the denver broncos we're making a playoff run we need to win uh to stay in the playoff hunt and uh intercept the ball to win the game on our two yard line uh great great moment in the nfl
0: that must be different from the tackle I saw you, see you make on uh, YouTube that just goes over and over and over again. You know the one I'm referring to.
1: I do, yeah. That was a great moment too. Those big hits have, have a, a special place in my, my memory bank. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: What's your leadership style?
1: Yeah, my, my leadership style is... Uh, <laughs> high empath, uh, really get to know the person connection first, uh, figure out what they want and then how to create psychological safety, lay that foundation. And then what I find is then you can push people and people want to be pushed, but if you push them too quick and you don't develop the connection, you don't really figure out what they want in life, where they want to go. Um, it's, it's harder to challenge them and, and push them. So I start with support, um, and, and support as much as I can. And then once, that's built that foundation's laid challenge let's let's push it to a level we didn't think was possible here here
0: coffee or tea
1: coffee yeah i love the coffee
0: moving quickly on biggest pet
1: peeve ooh uh, so one of the things that comes to mind uh the people that don't use their turn signals uh, when driving
0: I would argue you need more mindfulness, but I certainly would that. If you want an athlete or entrepreneur, what would you be doing right now?
1: Ooh, that's a great question. Wasn't an athlete, wasn't an entrepreneur. Uh, I think probably my my third favorite role is being a dad. Uh, I love being a dad and hanging out with with my kids and uh, looking for ways to support them and spend time
0: with them. Beautiful. And last question, dinner with three people, dead or alive, you can bring anyone to the, to the table. Who do you bring? Oh, oh, man, this is a good one. Um, I feel like
1: I've got to go with uh,
0: Jesus, Buddha, and Einstein. I think the world could do with a little bit more Jesus Buddha and Einstein right now. Uh John McCraw, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much.